Good morning, happy Sunday everyone. This is Amy and welcome back to the LBC podcast. As we continue our Pursuit of Purpose series, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of what it really looks like to love each other well. The church is a unique place, bringing together people from all walks of life who may ordinarily never cross paths. This is what makes it such a joy and a challenge to find our way through being a fellowship. Love is a powerful agent in the change process that can transform both the lover and the recipient. The passion of bold love is a gift that brings a hardened, defensive, enraged heart face to face with the unrelenting and piercing eyes of kindness. Dan Allender. We are deliberately designed by God and given creative capacities in his likeness so that we can operate his rule and reign throughout the earth. This means continuing the work of creation in partnership with God, filling the earth with more of his likeness in both shaping the natural world around us and creating families which reflect his relationship with us. Fellowship is the covenantal belonging to the family of God, offering a life of intimacy built on a shared purpose and bound together by God's loyal love. We, the church, are the family who reflect God's love to the world in the way that we love one another. That is no small order because God's love for us is perfect. As we learned in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, what each of us understands by love has been most deeply influenced by our relationships with our peers, our parents, and our partners. Whatever they modeled, healthy or not, has set the bar for each of us when it comes to our expectations of love. Depending on our experience, we have learned that love is something to be chased, earned, tamed, demanded, controlled, feared, embraced, or enjoyed. And those are the underlying beliefs that will shape the way in which we show up in our relationships with one another. The Bible gives us a good model for love. The passage most often associated with love is the well-known 1 Corinthians 13. You know the one, love is patient, love is kind. It's used most frequently at weddings. Though it was written for a bride, Paul did not write his letter to the newlyweds. He wrote it to the church, the bride of Christ. This passage is found in a letter to the church in Corinth, set amidst a full exhortation on the practicalities of how to love one another in a manner worthy of Jesus. This church was a dysfunctional disaster. People believed that because they were no longer bound by Jewish law, that they were free to behave in any manner they pleased. Forgiveness was on the table, right? Paul had to help them understand that this was not the case and showed them the result of this limitless and loveless living. Our love for one another, Paul argues, should compel each person to use their freedom with careful consideration in order to serve and seek the well-being of others. This means, in Corinth, taking into account both the Jewish Christians who still feel honour-bound to live by Old Testament laws, and the Gentile Christians, who are entering into the covenantal family with more complex cultural baggage. In other words, 
Love has to navigate the differences between us in a way that honors and upholds one another's desire to live in a Christ-like manner. In his letter, he talks about all kinds of offenses that were becoming common among the believers of Corinth, lawsuits, sexual immorality, disordered worship, and the abuse of gifts and power. He even has to respond to reports that someone is sleeping with their father's wife and explain to the new Christians why sleeping with the local temple prostitutes could no longer be part of their routine. This idyllic nuptial rhetoric is actually a fierce reminder to the church that they are called to be a royal priesthood, a people who live and love with holy order. Now, the problems of Corinth might feel a long way off from where we are today, but the root of the issues remain the same. When we gather together as a fellowship, we bring with us the baggage and the expectations we each have learned about what it means to live and love well. For those who've been around the church for a long time, we may bring what we've been taught and what we've absorbed from teaching, preaching and discipleship experiences. Christians, both new and old, bring what they've learned from their parents, their partners, and their peers. When you throw all these different perspectives and experiences into the mix, our shared understanding of love becomes very messy and very complicated. Imagine the church as a whole group sitting in a circle. Each of us holds a ball of wool. Each ball is a different color, just like our beautiful church chairs. That ball of wool represents the totality of our experience and perspective of love and who we are as individuals. One end of the wool is tied in a little bow around our ankle. When we're told that we must love one another, each person throws their ball of wool into the middle of the circle. It looks lovely, all those colors mixed in together, creating this big, fluffy, colorful pile. It's really beautiful, as long as you just sit still and admire it. That's what we imagine loving one another could look like. But what happens when we all stand up? What happens when someone moves in towards the center or pulls back away to the edge? What happens when we begin to move around, switching seats? What happens when we move from one person to the other for a conversation? The strings begin to get entangled around our feet. As we merge and collide, we may unknowingly trip on someone else's string, causing them pain or discomfort as it tugs at their feet. We may pull that string deliberately, trying to connect with them or find out where they are. We may circle back and trip up on our own string as we move around the circle, hurting ourselves as we go. As the wool becomes a messy matrix around our feet, it becomes increasingly hard to know where one person's string begins and the other's ends. To some, being loved will mean holding that string tightly so that the connection is always secure. To others, it means holding that string quite loosely so that they may come and go with ease. Some will want to remove their string from the mix altogether to avoid any discomfort or pain. Others will want to tangle their strings completely with someone else's, losing all sense of their own. Loving each other is not so easy now. 
So what do we do with this completely chaotic entanglement? Love is the art of weaving, separating which string is mine and which is yours, then bringing them together with care and order to create something that honors us both. There's room for me and there's room for you. I can be seen and you can be seen. As the wool is woven together, sometimes there's a little bit more of me or a little bit more of you, but ultimately the blend represents each of us well. This is not an easy process. If you've ever tried knitting, and I have tried, you know that in principle, it's a pattern of simple steps, but one wrong twitch of a needle and the whole thing can go awry. Even when we're careful with the weaving process, we will find ourselves getting caught up and twisted around in ways that become problematic. The solution is not to throw the whole pattern out, but to retrace our steps, untangle the knots and move forward. When a knot appears, the more we pull away or try to push through, the tighter the tangle becomes. If left unrepaired, one small knot can change the direction of the work sometimes beyond repair entirely. The church in Corinth had become a big entangled mess, so Paul set them out a pattern to help them carefully order each step, taking into consideration how their actions would impact the people around them. Here's an example of how he does this with one issue they were facing. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat sacrificial food and they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Or if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again, so that it will not cause them to fall. Corinth was a cosmopolitan port city, 
a cultural melting pot full of temples for Greek and Roman gods. The church was established in amongst all the different pagan practices of the day, and people who previously worshipped these other gods came to faith in Jesus, bringing with them the beliefs and traditions of their previous life. As they began to live out this new Christ-centered life, they would have to separate the traditions and beliefs associated with their previous gods and work out how to express their worship and theology appropriately within the church context. Remember, monotheism, which means having one God, wasn't a regular thing. Most cultures and religions worshipped a multitude of gods, often appealing to whichever one served their needs. The concept of having only one God for all things could be hard to get their head around. Now, Paul makes it clear that because these gods aren't real, the meat that's sacrificed to them has no spiritual significance. It's just meat. Eating it does nothing to improve or hinder their standing with God or any other gods. However, eating in the company of new believers could mislead them into thinking that Christians were to continue serving and appealing to all these other gods in addition to serving Christ. It wasn't a sin to eat the meat, but it was problematic to mislead someone into dishonoring Jesus by eating it too. If they wanted to eat the meat alone in their own home where nobody would be hindered by it, they were free to crack on because the meat itself is not the problem. Paul's point is clear. Loving one another in a manner worthy of Christ means assessing all the decisions that we are free to make by the effect they will have on other people and making a decision that both encompasses our responsibility and theirs. What's dishonouring to someone in one situation is actually acceptable in another, and there's room for discerning what is appropriate and when. Rather than ban the eating of the meat altogether, Paul calls for an orderly and thoughtful decision that can be made according to the situation. Christians lose the ability to love well when the rules and rituals we set for ourselves become about the meat and not the person affected by eating it. Over the years, I've been friends with both recovering alcoholics and those who simply have a personal conviction that drinking alcohol is incompatible with obedience to Jesus. As most of you know, I'm partial to a GNT and have no problem in my own theology with responsible alcohol consumption. So what happens then when my friends who won't drink and my friends who will want to get together? As a student, the majority of venues that were open around the town were pubs, and it was easiest for us to go there and enjoy our time together. However, we knew that for some of the people in our group, simply being in the pub or around alcohol invited the temptation to drink. The decision that I was free to make, because it had no adverse effect on me, was much more complicated for them. One option is for us to go to the pub and tell our friends they're free to join us or not. It is their belief, their problem, and their choice. But that's a really unkind choice for them to have to make. And ultimately, we want them in our company. So when certain people were part of the group, we chose to meet in a coffee shop because it was the most loving way to ensure our friend could share in fellowship and keep good conscience about their decisions. 
If those same people couldn't make it to a particular gathering, then we were free to go to the pub if we wanted. Choosing to alleviate that difficult choice for our friends was kind. And that was how we could use our freedom to fulfill our responsibilities to love them well. We recognized that their piece of string was tangled up in a complicated relationship with alcohol, and we didn't want to pull that knot any tighter. Love has room for your string and mine. We find a way to separate and order the pieces of me and the pieces of you in a way that honors us both. Even in today's situation, churches have been working overtime to work out what it looks like to love one another well when we find ourselves in a very foreign situation. As a leadership, we've had to think through how we serve the church as a whole with what we can provide in terms of worship according to the guidelines as they change. We had this discussion when the opportunity arose for us to have physically, socially distanced services at St. Mary's. We talked about whether we should drop the digital services in attempt to bring the church back together on Sundays. This felt especially important for those who've been unable to join us online throughout the year. But then we considered the pressure that this would put on people who still felt unable to go out. Due to their health, family responsibilities or anxiety in general, there would be people who could not come to participate in the Sunday services but would possibly feel pressured to do so just because we were back. They wouldn't feel right about sitting at home on a Sunday. Not only would we be giving them a difficult dilemma, but those who couldn't attend would potentially feel very left out if the whole church was happily gathered without them. This is why, in the end, we opted to meet on a Wednesday. Those who were able to gather in person could do so in good conscience, and those who were not could continue to meet with us online if they were able. Of course, there is no perfect solution, and sadly, we haven't been able to provide for everyone without digital access. However, we took the freedom that we had been afforded, and to the best of our ability, we made the most loving decision that we could come up with. These decisions aren't just about the choices we make regarding worship and ethical conduct. They encompass every area of our life and our relationships. As we fulfill our purpose together as a church, we all bring areas of weakness or concern and parts of our Christian life that still require work and growth. Equally, we all have areas of strength and resilience to offer as well. There are a multitude of areas within our relationships where we must begin to think about the balance between freedom and responsibility. When we show up for church, we bring the totality of who we are, our joys, our gifts, our experiences, our wisdom, our fears, our faults, and our failures. Part of being a covenantal family means finding a way to encompass all of this in order to move forward together. So when we throw our balls of wool into the center and things begin to get tangled up, what kind of problems might we encounter? Well, perhaps someone has operated in a world where their worth has primarily been attached to their work and any criticism of a job they've done may come across as an attack on their identity, telling them that not only is their work not good enough, but they aren't good enough. 
Their default response to this might be to fight, to argue, to justify what they've done regardless in order to preserve their sense of self-worth. This can make it difficult when we need to offer correction or advice to ensure that the work we do in our church is done well. There are people who will find conflict difficult. Perhaps growing up they were taught to avoid it rather than navigate it, or conflict at home led to significant personal damage. This can make it feel very unsafe for someone to engage when being addressed with a difficult issue or being asked to submit to a process of accountability. Their default position may be to withdraw or to self-isolate. There may be people who haven't experienced a particular hardship or insecurity and find it difficult to be patient or empathetic to the struggles of others because they assume that solutions are simple. Their tendency may be to get frustrated and to rush off or leave people behind when their struggles get in the way of success. This can make it difficult to keep the unity of the fellowship as a whole and ensure that those who have struggles, whether with mental health, trauma or physical health, don't get left behind. While we need to absolutely have principles and practices that we adhere to as a whole church without exception, there are times when the way in which we need to operate relationally to uphold them will need to be lovingly tailored to the person that we are working with. This is where love becomes a real work. That art of weaving we talked about, separating the strands of what is mine and what is yours, and finding a way to respond to the person in front of us. Let's take the example of the meat eating in Corinth and let's look at it this way. I'm a mature believer in Corinth. I am delighted that this newfound life with Christ affords me such freedom. I wish to enjoy all the perks that come with this lifestyle. Nobody can tell me not to eat this meat because I know it isn't wrong. That's me and my string. You are the new Christian. You're trying to work out how to live this Christian life and you haven't quite got your head around the whole thing. You need the other Christians around you to help you out because you're not entirely sure which decisions you can make and which you can't. You don't always understand why Christians do the things they do. You're finding it hard to give, give up all the other gods you used to worship just in case they're real and they get angry. When you watch the other Christians eating the sacrificial meat, you think maybe it's okay to do both. That would solve your problem, and they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't okay, would they? You're dependent on them showing you the right way. That is you and your string. That is separating what is mine and what is yours. I recognize the freedom that I possess and want to enjoy. You recognize a need that you have and require me to fulfill. Love is weaving them together in a way that works to honor both. And this is when we get into the power of both and. I both have the freedom to enjoy eating this meat with the knowledge that my allegiance is fully to Christ. And I have a responsibility to help my fellow believer distinguish the difference between their old life at the temple and their new life in Christ. It is both and. Both things are true. Neither cancels the other out. But let's look at it another way. 
Imagine a new believer in this situation trying to distinguish between the responsibility of the church and the responsibility upon themselves. I have a need for the leaders around me to model the new life that I'm trying to live out well. And I have a responsibility to find out why they are making these choices instead of just copying their every move. The mature believer's freedom comes with a responsibility not to lead someone astray. And the new believer has a responsibility to be thoughtful about each example they are given and ask questions about why it may or may not be right for them to replicate. This is the power of both and. It acknowledges both what's mine and what's yours. It acknowledges both the freedom and the need. There is a general principle in play and a choice to be made about loving engagement. Let's walk through this with some more examples. Think about the friend among us who is afraid of conflict. Here's a general principle. We must both hold someone accountable to a general standard of conduct within the church. And we can actualize this in ways that are respectful of who we're working with in order to help them engage with this process well. So here's the relational engagement. If I'm the person who must address an issue, here's my both and. I both have a duty to address this issue so that they can grow and mature in their walk with Christ. And based on what I know about them, I can try to do this in a way that will feel safe for them to engage. That's my both and. If it's me who has a fear of conflict and accountability, here's my both and. I acknowledge that the person holding me accountable has a responsibility to do so in a way that is safe and loving with respect to who I am. And I have a responsibility to manage my own fear and its responses so that I can engage with this process and find a way forward. This is a separation of my string and yours, knowing where one begins and the other ends, then finding a way to weave them together that loves, strengthens, and honors both. So the first step towards loving well means looking inwards to recognize the difference between what is my string and what is yours. Next is the recognition of our both and, the tension that exists between the mine and yours. These dynamics not only exist within our fellowship, but within our leadership and the responsibilities are altered slightly depending on where the greater power lies. I often have to think about the both and and the mine and yours that comes with the position that I serve in. Let's look at this example. In my previous congregation, I was aware that there were a significant number of people with deep and violent trauma in their backgrounds. From the time that I'd spent getting to know their stories, I was aware of the impact this had on their life their faith and their mental health. I was also painfully aware of the times when scripture had been used as a justification for the harm that had been done to them. What then was I to do as a preacher when these difficult passages and topics would arise? One might think that it would be loving just to skip them altogether. Why subject them to recalling the pain this passage had caused them? but ultimately that short changes them from having the opportunity to be at peace with scripture as a whole. 
and from learning to undo the untruthful interpretations of this passage that they have experienced. Others might think that it's responsibility of the other to simply separate their experiences from the scripture and face the facts that these passages are there. But if they don't have the necessary knowledge, understanding or skills to see it differently, how are they going to do that on their own? Paul's been very clear about the responsibility that comes with having knowledge. In this situation, what is mine? What is yours? And what can I do that honours us both? To engage without love would be to preach what I consider to be truth with no regard for the impact I know that it will have upon the listener. So here's the principle at play. My integrity requires that I don't alter the truth of scripture just to suit the space I'm working in. And my compassion requires that I utilize different ways to approach and unpack it that makes it safer for someone to sit with. I have a responsibility to study and teach the reality of what this particular passage says. And in my preparation of the sermon, I can use the knowledge that I have of you to do so with a care and clarity that does not affirm or exacerbate the ways in which it has been abused in your life. In practice, this might mean being very clear about what we mean when we use the word submission and the limits to which it should be applied or obeyed. Whether in relation to marriage or church leadership, I want to offer a healthy understanding of this subject that strengthens a godly relationship and I want to ensure that no one will be led astray, that there will be no misunderstanding that can be taken from what I've said, which would justify the abuse of someone's role or power. That is me. That is my string. That's my freedom and my responsibility. That is my both and. So what about the listener? What responsibility do they have? Well, they absolutely have the right to acknowledge the feelings and responses this passage evokes based on their experience and to recognize that this will compromise their ability to sit with this passage well. They have a responsibility to engage with the responses that this passage might trigger for them and they can ask for help to do this if they don't think they can manage it well. It's worth noting that responsibility and capacity are two entirely different things. Those in a position of extreme vulnerability or living with particular traumas do not always have the capacity to take on the responsibility that's theirs at this time. Recognizing a dynamic that encompasses my strength and security as a leader, I take the majority of responsibility upon myself to ensure that I know who I'm speaking to and how to do it safely. Christ always makes it clear that those in power have greater responsibility to those who are not. Working out the principles and the practices of our both and is tricky. It takes a lot of reflection and with practice it does become easier. As we begin to think about these things, we begin to trace these strings back to their respective owners. So the first step in developing a loving fellowship is to separate the mine and yours. 
then it's to work with responsibilities that lie within our both and. But here's the next step. As we separate our both and, we put one on one side and one on the other, we discover that there is a space between us. That space between us is the knowledge that neither of us possess about the other. That space is where most problems begin. And that space between us is communication. The other person has a responsibility to acknowledge why this is difficult for me, but I have a responsibility to communicate why this is difficult for me. They cannot know what I do not tell them. We can separate what is mine and we can take a guess at what is yours, but unless we really know, we cannot be sure. The space between us requires each of us to move our both ends towards the center, offering the part that is ours and inviting the part that is theirs. Loving communication means engaging both offer and invitation. We see Paul doing this in his letter. He employs the power of both and, you have both the freedom and a responsibility. He offers insight into the problem that this behavior may be causing for other people. And he invites them to participate in a way that stills allow them to enjoy the meat on their own time. In practice, someone cannot demand that I do not address a topic just because of the way it makes them feel. This is asking me to abandon what is mine, the responsibility to teach the whole of scripture safely. They're asking me to operate only on the basis of what is theirs, and that's not how this works. What they can do, however, is they can offer me insight into why this is difficult in their experience and invite me to discuss what would be helpful for them when I address it. In doing so, they empower me to make a kind and loving decision in response to their needs, a decision that encompasses both one and the other. This is the power of the communication that takes up the space between us. We must offer what is ours and invite what is theirs. Often in conversation, we might discern that a person's response to discussion is actually about something else entirely. We've separated mine and yours. We can offer a moment to acknowledge that something is affecting them and invite them to tell us what this might be. When engaging in conflict that's feeling threatening for us, we can offer an explanation of why this setting or approach isn't helpful. In response, the other might invite you to suggest what would be helpful so that together you can work out a solution. None of this is easy at first. It can be scary to offer an insight into our experience and needs because we fear that the other person won't respond too kindly. It feels incredibly vulnerable, especially to those who've experienced unloving responses before. The hard truth is, we may not get the response that we hope for. We are not responsible for what happens after we put our part down in the space between us, and neither can we try to control it. Sometimes we'll be disappointed 
and feel deterred from doing this with others again. However, we must remember that when we offer up the part that is ours, we also empower others to offer what is theirs and with this information to do what is loving and best for us because most people will want to. By offering what is ours, we empower them to make the choices that are most loving for us. Most people do want to understand the needs of others around them and have a genuine desire to respond lovingly. Again, that desire must be accompanied by capacity. They may want to and not know how to. Someone can both have the desire to be loving towards you and not have the skills or capacity to do so in the way that you need them to. You see why love is complicated? This idea of covenantal love means that I am committed to fulfilling my responsibility to the best of my capacity, even if you're not able to do the same. I am only responsible for doing what is mine and offering you the opportunity to do what is yours, even if you're not able to take it. All of this takes practice, but they are skills that anyone can learn if they're willing and committed. It can be as simple as trying it out with just one conversation. It will feel awkward and vulnerable, but the more we do this in the context of loving relationships and learn how to respond well to the needs of one another, the better it will become for the church as a whole. As a church, we can use this language in our conversations. We can suggest to somebody, can I explain to you what's tangled up in my string? Maybe you can help me understand what's tangled up in yours. Maybe then we can find the both and that will help us to move this forward. Shared language makes any dialogue a lot easier because we all understand the framework that we're sitting with. We carry these dynamics in our one-to-one -one relationships, but they also play out in our larger groups and affect the church family as a whole. Imagine a whole family is involved in a car crash. Each individual will experience and remember the event very differently, depending on where they were sitting and how badly they got injured. There will be both individual experiences of the trauma and a collective trauma that has impacted the family as a whole. Everybody has survived and are able to move forward with their lives, some with more resilience than others, but the experience will affect the whole family dynamic the next time they get in a car together. One family member may quickly and unexpectedly explode when they feel the driver isn't taking appropriate care when they narrowly escape having to stop at a red light. This anger can quickly devolve into a heated debate about the rules of the road or who should have done what and when. The reality is, that anger is masking a fear that simply says, I am afraid. I don't want the car to crash again. Those who are afraid have a responsibility to communicate this clearly, offering an explanation of how being in the car now makes them feel, suggesting what might help to alleviate the stress for them and take responsibility for managing their fear responses. The driver can acknowledge that they have the freedom to drive as they please. They are in this position of power. However, as an act of love, they will slow down 
and abide by the rules of the road with caution to ease the anxiety of their passengers. There's that both and thing again. Our experience as a church is similar. Whatever we've been through as a family affects us as a family. Our experience and recollection of events will differ and it will have impacted each individual in a different way. However, the experience itself has inevitably changed the dynamic of the family as a whole. The conflicts and experiences of the past can leave residual hurt, fears and anger that reside in the individuals and we cannot tell them how to feel. Sometimes those reactions arise in response to a particular issue and they can escalate quickly. And it's not about the issue itself, it's about the fear that has been left behind. Sometimes we bring in hurt, anger or fear that has nothing to do with the church at all. It comes from an experience with our partners, parents or peers. An inability to separate the mind from yours means the unrelated issue is triggered by the subject at hand. That's when you end up with a big old messy pile of wool in the middle tripping everybody up left, right and centre. It takes some care and clarity to ensure that people can move forward together with a reasonable sense of safety that this time the car will remain on the road. It doesn't just happen with the church. It happens with pastors and leaders too. I'm well aware that I'm preaching a sermon that I've yet to perfect in reality. Pastors bring their baggage, and left unattended, it can take its place in the pulpit, bringing what's mine into the space that's ours in a very unhelpful way. This is exactly why I have a pastoral counsellor and safe spaces to bring these issues outside the church. Because the question that I need to ask myself most often in this job with regard to any reaction or responsibility is what is mine and what is theirs. It's a skill that will require lifelong practice and never be fully perfected. In this role, the tough part is when I know that I have a position of power that requires me to take more responsibility for the space between us. It might take some time, but I'll learn and grow to the best of my ability to keep our family safe on the road, wherever the journey takes us. In learning to separate mine from yours, in learning to harness the power of our both and, and in learning to have the courage required to offer and invite, we find ourselves working much more effectively towards that utopian dream of love being lived as it ought to be. We're all broken and messy. We won't get it right every time. But there is one who can do it perfectly because he is love. Love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It is not dishonoring to others, nor is it self-seeking. Love is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but in truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails.
there has been a lot for us to think about today and plenty to practice going forward. As we meet for coffee, I have just one question for us to think about today. When have you experienced love in a way that has honoured both you and the other? And what has it taught you about loving others this way? That's it for me today, friends. I hope you found this helpful. Next week, we begin the first of our two sessions on discipleship. I hope everybody has a great week. Stay safe and stay 